following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're going to be looking at Numbers chapters 28 through 30. I titled this sermon, A Reason to Celebrate. I'm going to do something a little bit unusual, and I'm going to actually start with chapter 30, because there's really two different messages over these three chapters. So I'm going to hit chapter 30 first, and I'm going to go back to chapters 28 and 29, which is going to be the meat of the message. So starting with chapter 30. Moses told the leaders of the Israelite tribes, this is what the Lord has commanded. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. When a woman in her father's house during her youth makes a vow to the Lord or puts herself under an obligation and her father hears about her vow or the obligation she has put herself under and he says nothing to her, all her vows and every obligation she put herself under are binding. But if her father prohibits her on the day he hears about it, none of her vows and none of the obligations she put herself under are binding. The Lord will absolve her because her father has prohibited her. If a woman marries while her vows or the rash commitment she herself made are binding, and her husband hears about it and says nothing to her when he finds out, her vows are binding, and the obligations she put herself under are binding. But if her husband prohibits her when he hears about it, he will cancel her vow as binding or the rash commitment she herself made, and the Lord will forgive her. Every vow a widow or divorced woman puts herself under is binding on her. If a woman in her husband's house has made a vow or put herself under an obligation with an oath, and her husband hears about it and says nothing to her, and does not prohibit her, all her vows are binding and every obligation she put herself under is binding. But if her husband cancels them on the day he hears about it, nothing that came from her lips, whether her vows or her obligations, is binding. Her husband has canceled them, and the Lord will absolve her. Her husband may confirm or cancel any vow or any sworn obligation to deny herself. If her husband says nothing at all to her from day to day, he confirms all her vows and obligations which are binding. He has confirmed them because he said nothing to her when he heard about them. But if he cancels them after he hears about them, he will be responsible for her commitment. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the relationship between a man and his wife, excuse me, or between a father and his daughter in his house during her youth. So we look at chapter 30, and the majority of it, pertains to vows regarding women. The reason it's placed here is open to conjecture, but it could be because in chapter 27 we read about Zelophehad's daughters and women's inheritances. And vows uh, vows to God are a serious matter. We read in Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. So making a vow was strictly voluntary, but anyone who made one 
must fulfill the commitment. When we look at this chapter, we need to really put on the glasses that the Israelites looked through in their culture, which was a patriarchal society. Women weren't looked down upon, but they were under the authority of either their father or their husband. In today's world, this message in a secular world may not go across too well, but the the chapter actually benefits women and is not looked at to be denigrating to them. In verses 1 and 2, vows made by men are binding, regardless. There is no way out. But for those who are living underneath their father's care, if their father wanted to cancel it upon hearing about it, he could do that. And in the last part, if a wife made a vow and the husband heard about it and canceled it, there was no consequences. But if he let it go and then he canceled it later, then he would take responsibility for the canceled vows. So really, Numbers 27 and 30 elevated the status of women within the patriarchal society of ancient Israel. It was not to keep them under control. chapter contains several principles that apply to ancient Israel that we can look at in today's society. (coughs) Any promise we make to God is a serious matter, and it shouldn't be done rashly or without thought. There's probably no better example in Scripture than the story in Judges chapter 11 of Jephthah and the vow he made that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house when he returned from battle. And the first thing that came out of his house was his daughter. And he sacrificed his daughter because of the vow that he made. We need to weigh the effects of our vows and how they affect other people. Binding obligations should be taken carefully, prayerfully, and often in counsel with others. And family harmony within a cultural context should not be disturbed unless absolutely necessary. Part of the the background for this was women taking a vow to abstain from sex for a period of time from their husband. That in itself could create some strife within the family. So we see that in chapter 30, we need to look at vows as being something to be taken with great thought, great care, and not done in a rash manner. Now I want to move on to chapter 28 and 29. I'm only going to read a portion at the very beginning, chapter 28, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, Command the Israelites and say to them, Be sure to present to me at its appointed time my offering and my food as my fire offering, a pleasing aroma to me. And say to them, This is the fire offering you are present to the Lord. And within these two chapters, there are sections on daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, the monthly or new moon offerings, Passover, which includes Passover Day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the early day of first fruits. Then we have the Middle Festival, Festival of Weeks or Shavuot, also called Pentecost in the New Testament. Then the Fall Festivals, Festival of Trumpets, which is also called Rosh Hashanah or the Jewish New Year, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, and Festival of Booths or Sukkoth. 
And as we read through this, and to be honest, the first time I, I got the assignment for the chapters I'm looking in, it's just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And it's, how, what am I going to do with this? But when you really dig in beneath the surface of these two chapters, the story that's presented here is amazing. And as I go through this and peel back the layers of the onion, I hope that you come to the same conclusion that I did. One thing to note in every one of these festivals is that every animal that was to be sacrificed had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. God demands nothing but the best from us. And from the very beginning, Israel's relationship to God was based upon their obedience and their faith and their trust that they placed in him and following his commandments. The pagan nations around Israel could do whatever they wanted to do, and there was no consequences. But Israel must follow carefully God's commandments. Offerings and sacrifice had to be done following the rules that were laid out by God. And we see in verses 1 and 2 that preparation took time. And this was time that the people needed to prepare their hearts to worship God. Just like those of us today, as we come into worship, we don't sacrifice animals, but we still come to worship God, and we need to prepare our hearts as we come into worship, that we are obedient, submissive, and we just open ourselves up to God. It's only then that we really, truly have worship and fellowship. We think about the various feasts and festivals that Israel had, and they were intended to remind the people of the great salvation that God provided for them and to thank God for his goodness to them. At this point, Israel was getting ready to enter the promised land. And their days of wandering were going to be soon over, and they were going to transition into a settled life. And this dictated some adjustments into their religious life and practice. And the Lord is now revealing some of these new regulations regarding sacrifices and holy days. And anybody who thinks God is not a God of order, and I think his spiritual gift was administration, because everything is just so perfect. Um, As I was preparing for this, there's a background on how this whole festival cycle and calendar Works. So all the feasts of the whole year formed a cycle of feast days arranged according to the number seven, which had its starting point and center in the Sabbath and was regulated according to the division of time established at the creation into weeks, months, years, and periods of years ascending from the weekly Sabbath to the monthly Sabbath, the sabbatical year, and the year of Jubilee. In the cycle of holy periods, regulated as it was by the number seven, and expanding into larger and larger circles, there was the whole cycle of annually recurring festivals. These were established to commemorate the mighty works of the Lord for, for the preservation and inspiration of his people. And this was done in the following manner. First, the number of yearly feasts amounted to exactly seven, of which the two leading feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles lasted seven days. Second, in all the feasts, some of which were of only one day's duration, while others lasted seven days, there were only seven days that were to be observed with sabbatical rest and a holy meeting. 
Third, the seven feasts were formed into two large festal circles, each of which consisted of an introductory feast, the main feast of seven days, and a closing feast of one day. The first of these festal circles commemorated the elevation of Israel into the nation of God and its subsequent preservation. It commenced on the 14th of Nisan with Passover, which was appointed to commemorate the deliverance of Israel from the destroying angel who killed the firstborn of Egypt as the introductory festival. It culminated in the seven days feast of unleavened bread as a feast of deliverance of Israel from bondage and its elevation into the nation of God and closed with the feast of weeks, Pentecost, or the feast of harvest, which was kept seven weeks after the offering of the sheaf of first fruits on the second day of unleavened bread. This festal circle contained only three days that were to be kept with sabbatical rest and a holy meeting, the first and seventh days. The second circle fell entirely in the seventh month, and its main object was to inspire the Israelites in their enjoyment of the blessings of their God. For this reason, it was celebrated by the presentation of a large number of burnt offerings. This festal circle opened with the Day of Atonement, which was appointed for the tenth day of the seventh month as the introductory feast, culminated in the seven days Feast of Tabernacles, and closed on the eighth day as a solemn close of all the feasts of the year. This also included only three days that were to be commemorated with sabbatical rest and a holy meeting. But to these we add the Day of Trumpets, with which the month, month commenced, which was also a Sabbath rest with a holy meeting, and that included seven days of rest within the festival circles. We look at these festivals and they were divided into three seasons. There was the spring, the midpoint, and the fall. And each one required the Jewish males to travel to Jerusalem to participate in the festivals. The first season, Passover, was connected with the spring harvest. And it included three feasts, unleavened bread, Passover, and early first fruits. The second contained only the one feast, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And the third was connected with the fall harvest. It also contained three feasts. And all of these are discussed in Leviticus chapter 23. The first thing to note is that each of these offerings or festivals must occur at the correct time. This is in verse 2. Be sure to present to me at its appointed time my offering and my food as my fire offering. In both chapters 28 and 29, the main emphasis was on the priest's role as they performed the duties of intermediaries to God. Both the former and later prophets spoke of God's demand for faithfulness and obedience on the part of the priests and the people. And apart from these traits, their sacrifices were detestable and could never achieve their purpose. Amos 5.21-23 I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Then also in Zephaniah 3, 1 to 4, directed more towards the priests. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed, she has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in Yahweh. She has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. 
Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men, and her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The daily offerings were originally described in Exodus chapter 20 and 29, and they were used to consecrate the tent of meeting and the priests who served God. In Numbers 15, 1 to 21, there's more detailed information about the daily offerings. But the morning and evening cycle of the daily offerings reflect the morning and evening sequence of creation in Genesis 1. It was an indication that God was to be worshipped at all times. And the daily repetition would provide a never-ending picture of our responsibility to God and God's sovereignty. The weekly Sabbath offerings, the amounts were doubled. And the Sabbath centered on three things. Imitating God's resting on the seventh day, as we see in Genesis 2-2. A remembrance of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Exodus 28-10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son, or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. And third, it was remembering the founding of Israel when God delivered them from Egypt. We see that in Deuteronomy 5.15. Verses 11 to 15 contain the most detailed discussion of the monthly offerings of the New Moon Festival, which in Hebrew was Rosh Hadesh. And the New Moon was the basis by which the entire cycle of holy days and festivals was set. And up until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it was a fairly important festival. Ram's horns and or trumpets were sounded over the burnt offerings. Numbers 10.10. You are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your fellowship sacrifices, and on your joyous occasions, your appointed festivals, and the beginning of each of your months. They will serve as a reminder for you before your God. I am Yahweh, your God. In Psalm 81.3, blow the horn on the day of our feast, during the new moon and during the full moon. Even commerce was suspended on this day. Amos 8.5a, asking, when will the new moon be over so we may sell grain and the Sabbath so we we may market wheat? And even David's absence from Saul's table was a reason for concern. In 1 Samuel 25, So David told him, look, tomorrow is the new moon, and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go, and I'll hide in the field until the third night. However, by the 8th century B.C., the celebration had become contemptible in the eyes of the Lord because of social injustice and idolatry. Isaiah speaks about it in 113. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. Looking at verses 16 to 25, actually covers, I mentioned, three different events. First, there's the Passover, which occurred on Nisan 14 to 21. It's found in Exodus 12, 1 to 20, and it commemorated God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
occurred Nisan 15 to 21. And the day of first fruits, you need to remember there's two days of first fruits. This is the early day, occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread to celebrate the barley harvest. It's found in Leviticus 23, 9 to 14. And it was used to acknowledge God's provision by providing him with the first of their income. And Passover was considered the most important festival of the year. And the dual celebration of Passover and unleavened bread reflects the dual aspects of these annual feasts. God's salvation in delivering Israel from Egypt and God's sustaining blessing from the spring barley harvest. Then moving on to the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. It is seven weeks after the Passover. It commemorates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It includes the latter day of first fruits for the wheat harvest. At this celebration, the priests wave offered two loaves of bread with leaven, and they were eaten by the priests. And the book of Ruth was read during this celebration. There's a couple accepted reasons for this. First is that the setting of Ruth was in a rural area near Jerusalem at the time of the harvest. But more importantly, as we get farther into this message, it presents the love between a Gentile woman, Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and ultimately her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. It's a foreshadow of things to come, and the church was founded during this period in Acts 1. Chapter 29, the Feast of Trumpets, today known as Rosh Hashanah or the Jewish New Year. The trumpet was blown was a shofar, not not an actual trumpet. And it was a call to the nation of Israel to repent. The Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. It is a time when people gathered in solemn assembly to humble themselves before the Lord. And the entire chapter, Leviticus 16, spells out the requirements for the Day of Atonement. I'll only read two small sections of this. Leviticus 16, 29-31. This is to be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial. And do no work, both the native and the foreigner who reside among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statute. And also in Leviticus 23, 26-28, The Lord again spoke to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is a day of atonement. You are to hold a sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord. On this particular day you are not to do any work, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for yourselves for the Lord your God. And then the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, was a third of the seventh month holy days, celebrating the end of the agricultural season for the nation of Israel. And it began with Passover. The fall harvest included the vineyard, olive orchards, and vegetable crops, signifying the fruit of God's abundant blessing upon the community and was celebrated in conjunction with the remembrance of God's provision of dwelling places, tents, or booths. In the wilderness, after Israel entered the promised land, they were imitate their forefathers by building these same booths next to their houses and live in them during this festival. The first and eight days were Sabbaths for a sacred assembly. 
And we read that Jesus attended this feast in Jerusalem in John 7. And he said this, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And this was a direct challenge to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the first century Israel. Because the Pharisees practiced a ritual of carrying a large golden pitcher of fresh spring water drawn from the pool of Siloam. They paraded it ceremonially through the city to the temple where it was then poured out as a drink offering to God upon the sacrificial altar. In this, the ritual water, which was the symbol of life throughout the ancient world, would be poured out unto God in thanksgiving for the rains of the past year and in prayerful anticipation of that which would they, he would bless them with. But Jesus uses this imagery to teach a lesson about himself. He was the true source of life symbolized in the living water. We often talk about how the whole Bible points to Jesus. And this is certainly true of the seven festivals or feasts contained in chapters 28 and 29. As I mentioned when I first started looking at this, it looks like it's just days with sacrifices. But when you get into the deep meaning of each of these and you look at the Jewish background that pertains to it, it's an amazing picture of how each one of these points to Jesus' past, present, or future. The three spring feasts were all fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. And the three fall feasts will all be fulfilled at his second coming. And in between is a church age in which we live, aided by the Holy Spirit, which first came to dwell permanently on the day of Pentecost, which occurs during the Feast of Weeks. As we go through each of these festivals, one thing to remember is how the Jewish clock ran. The Jewish day went from sunset to sunset. So first, let's look at the Feast of Passover and how it points to Jesus' sacrificial death. Jesus was the Passover lamb. We read that in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus took the same path that the lambs that were brought in Jerusalem to be sacrificed took. Jesus entered Jerusalem at the same time as the Passover lambs already within the city were being set aside for the sacrifice. Each lamb before being selected was inspected for blemishes. We think back to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. For several days after his triumphal entry, Jesus was observed and questioned by the religious leaders. They could find no fault with him. They finally had to bring false charges. They even took him to Pilate, and Pilate could not find any fault with him. John 19.4 Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him outside to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Jesus had no blemishes. The Jewish historian Josephus records that a total of 
256,500 lambs were killed on the Passover Jesus was sacrificed. How he came to that number, it's a lot of lambs. The lambs themselves were prepared for sacrifice starting at 9 o'clock or the third hour. 9 a.m. or the third hour. Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. Mark 15, 25. Now it was 9 in the morning when they crucified him. The actual sacrifice of the lambs started at 3 p.m. Jesus breathed his last at 3 p.m. Mark 15, 34, and 37. And at 3, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus let out a cry and breathed his last. It points to Jesus. The Feast of Unleavened Bread points to Jesus' burial. This feast would begin at 6 p.m. on the day Jesus was crucified. Bodies were not to remain on the cross on a Sabbath. And this was not the normal Saturday Sabbath, but the high Sabbath associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. John 19.31 Since it was a preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. Leaven was often associated with sin. Jesus in John 6.32.35 implies that he is the unleavened bread that God sent to save us. Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Jesus, without sin, took the leaven of sin upon himself to the grave. The, the early day of first fruits points to his resurrection. And remember, there's two first fruits. This is the early one found in Leviticus 23.10. In Israel, grains were planted in the fall, germinated through the winter, and began to grow once the weather got warm. The harvest was cut and stacked, but eating any of it was not permitted until it was brought to the priests on the first day following the particular Sabbath after Passover. This was the day of first fruits. The priest would wave this before the Lord as a symbol that the rest of the harvest would be plentiful. The idea of first fruits is related to the firstborn, the firstborn of men and animals, animals who are to be consecrated to God. There are three principles associated with the feast of first fruits. You offered only the very best. It was a promise of a future harvest. And it made the whole W-H-O-L-E, holy. The offering brought before the Lord represented the entire crop and consecrated the entire harvest. Jesus fulfills all three of these principles. Offering the very best in Romans 8.3, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain. 
and as a sin offering. The promise of a future harvest. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since the death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in each, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward as coming those who belong to Christ. And making the whole holy, Jesus removes the sins of those who place their faith in him, making us holy in God's eyes. Then there's that middle festival between the spring and fall. Feast of Weeks or Pentecost was fulfilled by the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. Earlier I mentioned that Ruth was read during this festival and Boaz was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And according to Jewish tradition, when God gave the law to Moses, he did it by speaking all 70 languages of the world at that time. At least 15 different languages are represented in Acts 2, 9-11. But each heard Peter's message in their own language. And this would have been a fulfillment in the eyes of the Jews to their tradition of the law being given to Moses. And earlier I mentioned the two loaves of leaven, two loaves with leaven that were wave offered during this feast. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit unified two sinful groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one body, his church. Jesus is the only one capable of paying the penalty that existed in both groups. Just as Boaz was a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer to bring into the family all who place their faith in him. Ephesians 2.13-16 But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. This ushered in the period of the church in which we now live. The fall season points to the return of Jesus. The first was the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, and this was a very solemn festival. The most significant aspect of this feast was the blowing of the horn or the shofar. It was blown every morning except on the Sabbath from the first day of the month until the day before Rosh Hashanah. It was blown for 100 notes on each day, ending with one long blast. And during this feast, there's also a Jewish custom that when anybody wrote a letter to somebody else, they were to begin and end it with the wishes of a good year. And the standard blessing is translated as a good writing and sealing of judgment, meaning that the person's name should be written and sealed in the book of life for a good year. According to the Talmud, the book of life is open on Rosh Hashanah. Trumpet will also sound the return of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15:51 to 52. 
Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Also, Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In Jesus himself, in Matthew 24.29-31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The Day of Atonement, when the wheat and chaff are separated. Atoning was a provision of covering for sin and it provided a reconciliation between two parties that had been separated. The day concludes Rosh Hashanah. And rabbinical teaching is a day on which God's individual judgment on each person is sealed. Yom Kippur services end with a ceremony called Nila, which signifies the closing of the gates of heaven. A final blast of the shofar indicates each person's fate is sealed and there is no longer time for repentance. And the book of Jonah is often read in the afternoon since the theme is repentance and God's forgiveness for those who generally repent. Jesus is both the past fulfillment of the Day of Atonement for those who have already placed their trust in him and the future Day of Atonement. Hebrews 8 and 9 tells how Jesus fulfilled the Day of Atonement at his first coming. In Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of good things that have come, in the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. He is not only our high priest, but also the sacrifice. Both goats that are talked about in Leviticus 16 point in some way to Jesus. The goat designated for the Lord is a picture of the blood shed on our behalf. And the goat designated for Azazel is a picture of Jesus carrying away our sins. Psalm 103:12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus is also the future fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Language referring to the Day of Atonement occurs in the Old Testament prophets when they write about the end times. Those references are the sprinkling of the goat's blood on the altar by the high priest. Israel will finally recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Zechariah 12, 8-10 On that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that on that day the one who is weakest among them be like David on that day. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that come, come against Jerusalem. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And they will look at me whom they pierced. 
They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. In Zechariah 13, 8-9, In the whole land, this is the Lord's declaration, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but a third will be left in it. I will put this third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is our God. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, interestingly, it's also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It's a time of great rejoicing as a people celebrated the final ingathering of the harvest that God had provided. In both rabbinical and biblical teaching, the Feast of Tabernacles typifies the days of Messiah. In John 1, 1, John 1:14a, the Word became flesh and took up residence or tabernacled among us. In a future time, a time when God restores Israel and the Messiah, and a descendant of David would reign. Amos 9:11, in that day I will restore the fallen booth of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Isaiah 4, 2-6 On that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy. All in Jerusalem who are destined to live. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. For there will be a canopy over all the glory, and there will be a booth for shade from heat by day and a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. Then finally, Revelation 21.3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling, his tabernacle, is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. So as we kind of wrap up Numbers 28-29, if we just look at it from a surface standpoint, we don't get too much from it. It's a lot of sacrifices. It's a lot of animals and grain and festivals and duties of the priests. But when you really dig into the meaning Every one of it points to Jesus. It points to Jesus in the past. It points to what's happening in the church right now. And it points to what's going to happen when he comes back a second time. In as challenging as it was for the Israelites to keep all these feasts and all the details in the feasts, Isn't it wonderful that we just have to go to Jesus? We don't need to remember on this day to sacrifice this amount of animals. On this day to travel to a certain city. To make all these preparations that Jesus has done everything for us. And all we need to do is to repent and believe and turn to him. And we are participants 
in every one of these festivals that the Old Testament nation of Israel needed to observe every year. So just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful picture of how Jesus is seen through every one of those. Let's pray. Fathers, as we just consider the message in chapters 28 and 29, about all the celebrations, about all the details, it must have been almost burdensome on the nation of Israel to have to remember everything and do everything so precisely. And yet, through your mercy and grace and your love for us, you sent Jesus, who has fulfilled and will fulfill every one of these celebrations. And instead of us having to remember to sacrifice bulls or lambs or grain, we just trust in Jesus. We just turn to Him. We place our faith in Him. We walk with Him in obedience. And we are participants in every one of these festivals and feasts. We reap all the benefits of it by just trusting in Him. So, Father, as, as we close this, we're just, just so thankful that we have this fellowship, this relationship, and that you loved us enough to send Jesus to take our place, to pay our sins. And forever we're participants with you. And we all look forward to the day that we will be tabernacled with you around the throne. With all these sins in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.